Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Hi, thanks for joining me. This is Dr. Fred. As was announced, you're listening to Study, Grow, Know. We have a new dog, as I've written about before, and like our older dog, Buster, we are getting this new pup trained. We've learned with dogs that it's best to give simple commands and repeat them the same way so that they will come to understand what those commands mean. Sometimes the command is given with an initial action, and then eventually only the command has to be given. This new pup is extremely intelligent and is learning very quickly. We've been working on his recall, the ability to come back to us when we call him so that he will return or come to us when we call without hesitation, because the last thing you want is a dog who won't come when called due to the many distractions that exist either in the house or outside. Now, another command we use is the leave it command. This we use when his nose starts directing his attention to something that we don't want him to mess with. When we go for walks, for instance, we're blessed to have 1,300 acres across the road, and the owners have given us permission to walk on those acres with our dogs whenever we like. Now, it's a fairly safe place to walk because it's away from traffic. However, there are plenty of things that can vie for a dog's attention, so it's also a good training ground, good training for exercise. Sometimes Scooby will find some armadillo excrement or cow pile that seems especially inviting. Now, most dogs will try to roll in these things because experts say that they want to smell like their surroundings. Well, if you've ever smelled armadillo poop, it has no redeeming value. At least with cow poop, it has kind of an earthy smell to it, so it's not that bad normally. So when Scooby seems to be taken with these piles of excrement, we'll say, leave it, not in a harsh way, but in an unmistakably authoritative way so that he knows we mean business and what he's about to do he shouldn't. He also wears an e-collar, which gives me the option of using a tone, vibration, or static shock to drive the point home. I am impressed with how I rarely have to use that collar. He tends to obey voice commands, and for such a young dog, five to six months old, that's really remarkable on its own. So as we walk, if Scooby gets too far ahead of us, we'll call out, wait, and because our older dog understands that command and stops, Scooby is picking it up too and will do the same thing. We ensure we give both dogs plenty of praise for their listening to cement the idea that following our rules is a great idea. Now, our only concern at this point is that Scooby appears to like running after cars, even though his right front leg was run over by one. And I'm sure it could have killed him if the car had just been going in a slightly different direction. But even though he is fenced in our gated yard and can't get out unless we let him out, when a vehicle comes by that he thinks is going too fast, he will run along the fence on the inside and bark at the vehicle until it's gone. I'm not sure how to break him of that except to drive the point home with a strong leave it and the e-collar if necessary. Now, because of this, when we go camping, he will likely need to be on a run 
to ensure that he doesn't go after vehicles or leave our campsite to wander off. Our older dog, Buster, doesn't care about cars or trucks, and he will stay in our campsite area without the need of a lead or run. But he's also four years older, and he has a different personality than Scooby. It's important, I think, that our furry friends learn numerous commands because they are teachable and it makes for an all-around better situation in the home. Dogs are happier when they know they are doing things that please. I'm, of course, talking about domesticated animals. They become truly loyal and they want to do what makes owners happy. And for us, it is ultimately about keeping Scooby safe and happy. Isn't it the same way with Christians? God has rules. And just because people become Christians, it doesn't mean the rules are set aside. We do not need to follow the Ten Commandments to somehow gain salvation, because we can't anyway. But as Christians, we should ensure that we are not actively breaking those laws, shouldn't we? Should we lie, steal, cheat, kill, take the Lord's name in vain, commit adultery, etc., etc., etc.? Obviously not. We avoid doing those things to remain in right relationship with God that allows continued fellowship with him. If we end up breaking a law here or there, we don't lose our salvation as some teach, though our fellowship with God will certainly be marred until we admit and repent of our wrong. Salvation is not following a list of do's and avoiding the don'ts, as people have often explained Christianity to be, it is being in relationship with God first and foremost because of salvation. And as a result of that relationship because of salvation, we should learn to live the do's and avoid the don'ts. Now, in his opening statements in 1 Peter 1, Peter greets the brothers and sisters. And note he says that all Christians, not just those he was writing to, by the way, are, quote, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 1-2, New King James. But why else, other than our sin natures, do we struggle with being obedient? Hmm, well, it seems so difficult at times, doesn't it? I got to admit it is. Maybe you would admit the same thing. In fact, taking it one more step, why do we Christians seem to have a problem making good and right decisions consistently? I think Peter, like James, nails it down for us, and we would do well to pay close attention to it, I think. Peter was writing to a group of new believers who had been scattered and were undergoing difficult persecution simply for being Christians. Peter encouraged them to not see the persecution as strange or even unwanted, but to embrace it since it meant they were suffering for Christ's sake as he suffered for ours. That's why I believe Peter reminds them of their heavenly blessing in 1 Peter 1, 3-12. I won't take the time to read that, but you might want to look that up. Peter spends much time in 1 Peter chapter 2 detailing the salvation that was foretold by many, many prophets and then explaining the quality of that salvation that leads to an inheritance incorruptible, something we will all have one day. And then Peter tells everyone how to live practically based on the truth of salvation. In other words, what our response should be to the gospel. First Peter 2, 
1 to 3. And he says this, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. What Christian does not want to live the way Peter tells us and follow the rules that he outlines? There's a lot of don'ts there, aren't there? And the few do's. Anyone who doesn't want to do what Peter outlines should probably do some serious heart searching to determine whether or not they are actually saved. I would like to lay all of that aside and once for all in my own life, but while I know that's impossible to do now, we can still make significant gains toward all of that as we wait to receive our full salvation that awaits us. Now, Peter also notes that Jesus was the stone that became the chief cornerstone, even though he was fully rejected by the religious leaders of this world. Peter notes that they stumbled over Jesus because that's what they were destined for, 1 Peter 2.8. The remainder of that chapter is filled with admonitions to be obedient and to submit to God in all things. I've dealt with it on numerous occasions when I dealt with Romans 13, and I have a link to some of those articles in the transcript. Now, here's the reality that I think Peter is discussing in the remaining part of 1 Peter 2, and then in chapters 3, 4, and 5. The question really for all of us Christians is, how? How do we follow our Lord consistently, even if not perfectly in this life? Well, there appears only one way that I can see, and many writers of the Bible discuss this with Jesus pointing it out as well. In order to be as consistent as possible in following Jesus in this life, we first need to fully understand how we are to live. In other words, what does the Bible tell us? And then we are to work on being separated from this world emotionally. I want to stress that emotionally. Too often this concept may be understood to mean that we must separate from the world physically, but the Bible tells us that's not it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That seems like a tall order. I mean, that above text that I just read, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, is really plain. It's very obvious. If we love the world emotionally, and love is often felt, we will be constantly drawn to the things the world produces to the point of coveting them strongly, maybe even more strongly, than we want to know God. These things will take up residence in our hearts, pushing out our commitment to God. The more we love the world and the more we love the things in the world, the less love for God we will have, the less discernment and wisdom we will evidence and draw from in our lives because our focus will be on those earthly things that are fading away. You know, it's funny, like you, I'm sure I can look back over my life and actually see the times I failed 
miserably, but didn't know why necessarily at the time. Well, it was due to the fact that I was enamored in large part with the things of, I guess we'll call it Egypt, the world, Babylon, and I wanted them in my life. And John's words above that I just read show and remind us that Satan's system of commerce throughout the world is one that is really designed to capture our hearts and minds. Now, this is not to say that everything we enjoy in this world is wrong because it's not. It's simply not. What it is to say is that if and when the things of this world capture our hearts and emotions, then we're often pulled away from following our Lord because something in this world has unseated him as Lord of our life, and that is wrong. So it's not the things of the world that are wrong. It's how much we embrace them and how much we allow them to displace Jesus as Lord of our life. So to circumvent this, I think it's very important to go through the things you own and the interests you have on a regular basis and ask yourself, what could you do without? What are you holding on to in your heart that really has no value? This is the process of coming out of the system of Babylon. And it is interesting that the same author of 1 John also authored Revelation, where he includes the warning he hears in Revelation 18, where the voice from heaven commands that his people come out of Babylon. Now, if God warns his people to come out of Babylon, there has to be a good reason for that. And again, this does not mean we cannot avail ourselves of the comforts of this life. We don't have to, you know, stop going to the grocery store. We have to buy our own, grow our own food. We have to kill the animals that would slaughter them that we're going to eat. And we don't have to do that. We simply should not put our faith in those things and let them take up residence in our hearts where only love for God should exist. So when John hears that warning in Revelation 18, I tend to think of it as the final warning for Christians alive during what many believe to be the tribulation, the final seven years of human-led history prior to our Lord's return. We should always live in a way that keeps us from becoming or falling in love with the things of the world. Revelation 18.4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. So John hears the warning that those who do not come out of Babylon will share in their in Babylon's sins and receive Babylon's plagues. Why? Well, because those particular Christians, they won't have the wherewithal, the discernment, or wisdom to see any of it coming. They'll be blinded, so enamored by the things of the world that they can't see beyond it. They won't be awake to God because they will be too in love with the things of this world. And it seems clear that God does not want his children to be on the receiving end of the plagues that will destroy Babylon, the world system. You know, the whole subject here kind of reminds me of Lot. Had Lot not gotten out of Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically Sodom, he would have perished as the people of those twin cities perished. With great haste, the angels directed Lot, his wife, and two daughters out of the area. It was a very close call, Genesis 19. Yet Lot's wife was too caught up in Sodom and couldn't separate emotionally for her love for it. Truly, Lot should never have settled in Sodom and certainly should have left once he realized how corrupt and evil the people in the system were there, but he didn't. 
he unfortunately became overcome by it. He seemed to go along with it. I guess it's one thing to live there and not be part of it, but Lot didn't do that. He was overcome by it. Why? Well, likely because of the amenities and conveniences of living there. It would have been harder to live in an area that that didn't have that type of things that, that Sodom did. So he had to put up with the corruption because of it, by ignoring it, by pretending it didn't exist. And the one time he did speak up, the men of the town were ready to literally take him apart for what they saw as a seriously judgmental attitude on Lot's part. They were going to teach him a lesson. The angel saved him from that. Well, it seems clear to me that this is the problem that believers in the book of Hebrews experienced as well as the Corinthian believers, as well as the ones in Peter's uh, day when he wrote to them. In fact, it's a recurring theme throughout the New Testament and Scripture, and we see a lot of it also happening in the Old Testament. Moreover, if we look carefully at the seven letters to the seven churches in the opening chapters of Revelation, it is clearly a repeated problem. Christians who lose their dedication and their zeal to their first love by being enamored with aspects of the world system tend to move away from fellowship with God. The result is a lack of blessing including God-given wisdom that creates discernment within us. Don't you want to have more wisdom and discernment? The more we have of the world, the less we have of that because the less we have of Christ. Now, just as we are teaching our new pup to leave it when it comes to specific things that we know aren't going to do any good for him, Christians need to be doing the same thing. God tells us throughout the day, leave it when temptations come. And we need to recognize the temptations and be willing to leave it so that we can remain in fellowship with Jesus. What can we choose to leave that we might have more of him? That's for each Christian to go through their lives, maybe with a fine tooth comb and figure that out. And God will show you. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. And I pray until we meet again. I pray that the Lord will open your eyes to show you how blessed we are in Him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 